I know that you'll all know my guests this week. And if you're anything like me, you're going to just love getting to know her better. Nadia Hussein is a woman that we have adored for so many years after she won the British Bake Off. And it's been such a fantastic hour because Nadia's story is, it just reminds you that we've got to stop listening to our inner voices and we've got to trust our gut and we've got to never say we can't do something. You'll hear Nadia speaking the words, you can and you will. A moment in time for her that has meant so much, been allowing her to battle the demons around her and allowing the light to shine. And I don't know where she's going to end up, but my goodness, this is a powerhouse of a woman. So prepare to be inspired. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Nadia. It is such a pleasure to meet you today. You are one of the greatest national treasures. I'm sure loads of people have introduced you like this. So welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I always find it really odd when people ask me to do stuff like this because I'm like, really, I haven't got any... I mean, my teenagers, they don't listen to me. So I've got nothing to say to them. All I get is eye rolls. So really, I haven't got anything interesting to say. So to be asked to do something like this makes me feel really good. I'm like, what? Somebody actually wants to listen to me. (laughs) You know what? As a joke, I said to my brother, literally a couple of days ago, I said excuse me, watch yourself. He's younger than me by 11 years. And I said, watch yourself. I'm a national treasure. And he just <laughs> laughed in my face, like he literally spat in my face, which is hilarious when you address yourself as a national treasure. Oh my goodness. I want to start with a little bit about your background because you grew up in Luton, one of six children as part of a Bangladeshi family. What was those early years like for little Nadia? It's really bizarre because I kind of live a very... I mean, I have lots of family. When we get together, I think there's 28 of us on my side of the family and there's 29, maybe 30 on my husband's side. So that's just immediate family, brothers, wives, uh, brother-in-laws, nephews and nieces. So I'm used to being a part of a big family. But because I've got my own family, kind of we're much more selective with our time. So, you know, we do spend a lot of time together as a, fa- as a nuclear family. But of course, we've got our extended family and, and our own brothers and sisters who we spend a lot of time with too. So... For us, there was none of that growing up. Uh, When you're one of six, there is no such thing as an extended family. Everybody is your family. The neighbour is your family. The entire street is your family. The door is unlocked. People come, people go. And I remember kind of not really thinking about that till I got to about 16. 
it was normal for a weekend to have 50 people around all cooking in the garden, having these massive cookouts and eating together. That to me was completely normal. My dad walking in on a Friday night with a sheep on his back and chopping that up for the Saturday morning cookout. That was completely normal for us. And it was only really when I became a teenager and I was doing my GCSEs and they were just kids and cousins. And it was just like, okay, so it turns out I quite like quiet and I only realized that only about sort of 16 thinking, oh, actually, there's, there is actually such a thing as having time to yourself. And I say that, like, I love quiet time. I love alone time. But I also really like the buzz of having lots of people in a house. So I kind of in equal measure like both. But it was mayhem. I mean, if I was going to use one word to describe growing up, it was mayhem. Your dad was a chef, wasn't he, in mm. an Indian restaurant? Yes. Yeah, it sounds incredible. But... What, when I've spoken to people, my husband's Irish and he's actually from a smaller family, but, you know, his mum was one of uh, 16. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just crazy. So when it, I understand that sort of extended family and how large it can become, what do you think about the comparison that your children are growing up in compared to how you grew up? It's a world away from what, the way we grew up. But I've got to say there are bits of the way I grew up that I really wish my kids had. I wish they did have certain elements of um, that kind of open door. But that equally, I quite like that they have their own space because, you know, there are pros and cons to both. So we're kind of trying to give them a little bit of both worlds, but controlled. But to be honest, for me, I didn't really understand what it meant to have that kind of solitary time and space in terms of physical space, but also mental space, till I kind of started to understand religion and God and becoming more spiritual and more connected to God. Only then did I realise, actually, there is time for just, you have to, there is a moment in your life where there, there has to be just you. And I think from a really early age, 13, 14, I kind of started to understand what it meant to be a Muslim and and, and got much more spiritual and, and closer to God. And that kind of, those were the moments where I kind of could cherry pick mm. when I spent time on my own. Like I look back and I say to my teenagers, guys, like I found God at 14. Can you guys not do something kind of slightly, like just clean your room? <laughs> like I found God at 14. Can you not just tidy your stuff? <laughs> oh, God, I need to use that one. But I didn't. But, you know, just that, say that's it. Just say it for them. fun. Just, I'm just, just, I'll say it. I'll say it. I'm going to use that tonight. Now, you found God at that age. But before that, I know that you your childhood was difficult. Um, and you said that you were an anxious child and that every day was a fight for you. Mm. It was really heartbreaking to hear about the racist bullying the sexual assault that you experienced as a child and the fact that it led you to contemplate suicide at the age of 10. And it really shocked me when I was researching you because 10 is so little. You know, this is not teenagers and now, God, Instagram, what they get. But 10, mm. what was that feeling? Was it suicide or was it ending something? It was, it, it, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there because it wasn't about, at the age of 10, I hadn't experienced death yet. Like I lost my granddad when I was a baby. So I, I don't remember him dying. So I had no concept of death. And of course, there was kind of things like, I mean, even at this point, even post sexual abuse, I hadn't actually known till I was sort of 13, 14, what had happened to me because I had no concept of sex. And, you know, I, I had no idea. No, I didn't know what it was. So 
I didn't know what happened to me till I was in my biology class and I was being taught, I was in my sex education class and I was like, oh my goodness, that's what happened to me. And that was like a light bulb moment for me where I'd realized what had happened. It, for me, that kind of, that constant stream of bullying from the age of three, four, as I remember as a kid, I was four years old in nursery and the teacher said to me, you can't have cake. She was passing out cake to all the kids because it was somebody's birthday. And she stopped at me and she said, you can't have cake, you're fat. And she moved on to the next kid and the next kid and the next kid. And like, you would not hear that. Today, you wouldn't hear that. No. You, you, would, you no. would get sacked for saying something like that. And it was and the constant stream of bullying from the same boys up until the age of sort of 17, 18. And I didn't understand what suicide was. Mm. But what I did know was dying meant ending something. And it was the weekend before I'd even contemplated it that I'd actually watched, I had older cousins and old boys. So they were watching things that they shouldn't be watching. And we were watching something and there was this person who had taken an overdose with pills and, I th and, and they were going to die. And I thought, well, for me, I didn't want to die because I didn't understand what death was. But what I didn't want was to go back to school. I liked school, even though I was so horrifically bullied. I really enjoyed education. I really enjoyed learning and I really liked my friends and I liked being in that environment. I just didn't like being bullied. And I thought, well, if I don't have to go back to school and I'm a bad liar, so I wouldn't have been able to fake being sick. And I really wanted 100% on my attendance. I remember that. I was like, no, I gotta get 100% on my attendance. I was like a little teacher's pet. You were caught in this place. Of yeah. So wanting 100% attendance, being a good girl. But yet that meant you were going to get bullied. Yeah. I mean, did you tell your parents? Did you tell? No, I never told them. Oh, my goodness. Never told my parents. Because you wanted to protect them? No, no, I think it wasn't about protecting them. You know, I, I suppose it was, I suppose, in some ways. I grew up with a brother and sister who were very sick as children. So my little sister had a congenital heart disease. Um, and so she, she has been operated on her whole life. And she's always been kind of... Between every operation, she's always been on the brink of death. It's always 50-50. It's like, mm. we don't know. So that was from the age of two and a half right up to now in her 30s. So she's always been very poorly. And then I have a brother, both my siblings are younger than me, who ha who was born with bilateral hair, hair lip and cleft palate. So he was in and out of hospital. I mean, he's like in his 30s now when he's had something like 30 surgeries, his, you know, his entire life. So that's averaging on a surgery every year. So, you know, that, that had an effect on him, but also that had an effect on my parents. And, and mm. I think for me, the reason why I never told them was because I suppose for me, myself and my other siblings who are well, we had to learn perspective really early and no child should have to learn perspective. You can't teach a child perspective because their problems are real. They are happening to them and we shouldn't mm. be teaching them perspective. We should be allowing them to feel and to know that their problems are real and that we can mm. deal with them, that we can handle them and that they are very much uh, important. And so for me, as a kind of, I just turned double digits, telling my parents I was being bullied did not feel important when your sister was going into hospital and she could die. In the pecking order of, of the importance of things, you were low on the list as far as you were concerned. Absolutely. I mean, as you said, you know, these things wouldn't happen today. And I'm, you know, just so bloody sorry that you went through that. I mean, no no child, no one should ever experience what you experienced. Mm. Um 
As a child, though, we aren't necessarily encouraged to speak about mental health. Hmm. Did you know that that's what you were experiencing at the time in terms of, of course, there was bullying, but then that would have led to depression, which is what you were experiencing to then contemplate ending it. When did you figure that out? I mean, we didn't. I mean, mental health wasn't a thing. You know, we didn't talk about mental It wasn't a thing. People did not talk about it back then. And I didn't even know it was a thing till I was sort of 18. No. When I realised that, because I remember being at school and people saying she's just really sensitive mm. or she's really particular about certain things or mm-hmm. she doesn't like doing things a certain way. Or sometimes I remember being called difficult or argumentative or emotional or the fact that I, I remember my dad saying, why do you ask so many questions? And so it was all of those little things, whether it was something my dad said or my teacher said, or, you know, even things like, oh, she's a perfectionist, you know, little details like that. You know, back then I kind of look back and think, oh, maybe I was just sensitive. Maybe, you know, as a kid, I just kind of, you get stuck with those names. You get stuck with those labels. And I remember sort of being 16, 17, thinking, why can't I just worry like a normal person? Why does it matter to me? that it's raining. Like, like, why can't I just be? Like, why can't I just exist? And and I never really understood. That was just kind of the web that had I'd weaved. My mental health was so out of control. And, and so... Um, well, you were so out of control with the things that were going to be happening to you. You controlled anything you were able to control yeah. potentially and you were yeah yeah and and now looking as adults you understand that but at the time you know and I know um in your community there's no is am I right in saying this there's no word for mental health yes yeah, so I that's something that I I kind of talk openly about it's like when I I did my documentary anxiety and me my dad watched it he doesn't watch anything I do. So he doesn't He doesn't watch anything I do. For him, my job is just a job, just like my sisters and my brothers. And that's mm-hmm. humbling. I like that. I like that they don't care. And that's nice for me as a child, that actually my job is just my job, just like my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they do a far more important job because they're key workers and they work through the entire pandemic. So what they did was they were there in the front line. You know, so for me, my dad watched bits of anxiety in me and said, I'm really angry with you. And I said, why are you angry with me? He said, because you didn't tell me. And I don't think he fully understood why I didn't tell him or why I didn't say it. Mm. And I said, but why are you angry with me? I don't think he fully understood. And there's more to it than just one documentary. You know, it's it's deeper. Yeah. It's it's yeah. much more deeper rooted than, 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 than one documentary. So, yeah, it's not something that I ever kind of explained to my parents and they never really fully understood it. And, and growing up, that obviously affected every relationship that I was ever, you know, I've, I've ever been a part of. You know, my husband, my children, you name it, all of it. It's all kind of... It's all linked. It is, yeah. Yeah. Because those experiences that you had led you to suffering from, you know, terrible panic attacks and anxiety. And you've been, you know, incredibly brave and candid in speaking about it and the impact that this has had on your life. You ended up writing a book for children hallelujah, Mm -hmm. that you did this, called My Monster and Me, that helps children and parents navigate worries and anxieties. Writing is something that you're passionate about, and it's a tool that's helped you as you grew up. Do you think it's an important tool? Oh my goodness. For me, writing has always been my tool to express. Apart from baking, which is much more kind of like hands-on, 
writing for me has always been the thing that allowed me to express and create because it's not necessary. I could take an emotion and write an essay or a monologue or a story or a poem. For me, it's about letting it go. Once I've written it and it's there and it's saved, mm. I can let it go. And I think for me, it's always that kind of letting it go with the wind. And when I write, that's me just letting it go with the wind. And, and, and that, that allows me to just kind of move on and step away from it. And that's really helped me. That's always helped me as a child. Once I, want, I remember winning that poetry competition and realising how liberating it felt to write things down and so I've always written from the age of sort of 10 12 um, whether it's poetry monologue stories I've always written and touching on what you said and I didn't really answer the question is that growing up within a Bangladeshi community there is no word for mental health when somebody was suffering or struggling it was usually they're on drugs mm -hmm. or um, they're mad there's a, there's a, there's a lot between drugs and being mad and there is no terminology. I I mean, there might be terminology and I don't want to kind of speak out of turn. So there may be terminology. But for me as a Bangladeshi woman, I have yet to find the word to say I have mental health issues. And it is very much swept under the carpet. It's something people don't want to acknowledge or talk about. So I'm really open about keeping that dialogue open and they're constantly yes. talking about it. And all, what an important job. Yeah, and although my parents don't really understand what it means, I do try my, my hardest to kind of explain it to them. And to be fair, they look at me completely blankly and don't really get what I'm saying, but that's okay. As long as we're having the conversation and our kids see that we're having the conversation, that's really important. And, and of course, for me, that kind of, in order to kind of open that up, it was important to write books and it was important to write for children because I never found a book that I could go I never went you know when you go to the library and you've got that little section of kind of like family matters it's called like family matters you've got things like divorce and sexuality and mm. and death and bereavement and that kind of stuff well there was nothing on mental health and I said right well that this is the book that I'm going to write and you know I went really I went back to how I felt as a seven eight year old and what having anxiety felt like for me I've always called my anxiety my monster and so I kind of went back to kind of my younger self and said what book would you like to read what book would explain to you what your mental health felt like and mm. honestly it's one of the, my biggest most proudest achievements was writing that book because I know it's helped so many people and not just children like grown-ups I feel emotional you know I feel emotional not only because what you do but I'm sort of sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking what extraordinary lives that we have, mm. you know, that you got to right some wrongs mm. in terms of you got to have a life that allowed you to write a book for children and pass on your deepest childhood dreams of how you wish someone had maybe spoken to you or spoken to you and you've given it to other children. Yeah. And I just, I just had one of those moments where I just thought, my goodness, you know, and we're going to talk on about all your successes, but yeah. Thank you for, yes, being you. Oh. Anyway, don't normally I cry at the end of these <laughs> podcasts, but there you go, Nadia, you made me tear up halfway through. Um, I'm sorry, I have, a way, I have a weird way of doing that. Like I constantly make people cry. Yeah, you too. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, let's, okay, let's, let's try and only do two okay, crying just two moments, crying. Holly, in this yeah. year. I've done one, one's at the end. These experiences um, that you've had in terms of going through sort of a world of anxiety mm. must have taught you some real lessons and 
you know, what some powerful life lessons, I suppose, because I, I read that you said this time last year you were having panic attacks every other week yeah. and that your last panic attack was actually at Christmas. Mm. And this is the longest you've ever been without a panic attack. Mm. What do you think has happened? And is there anything you could share with those that are listening? Um, oh, gosh, you know, to think this has been 36 years of... Pro, you know, for me, you know, 36 years later, it's progress. And I'd love to say that there's this, you know, all of us, anyone who suffers with anxiety, we'd love to say there's this switch mm -hmm. that just happens. Um, and the truth is, I think I'll forever live in fear that it will be there and it will kind of consume me. But that is part of the reason why I feel so much better in myself is that I've just accepted that that could happen again. And if it does, I've accepted that it won't kill me. Like that's not going to be the thing because when you have a panic attack, you do feel like you're dying. And for anyone who's never had one before might think that's completely extreme and, and it can't possibly. But for anyone who's had a panic attack, they will know it feels like you are literally on death's door. You can't breathe. Your world spins. You have no control over your body. And it feels like death. And it feels like that's it. I can't breathe. My chest is tight. My airways are clogging up. You do feel like you're going to have a heart attack. And for anyone who's experienced that will know that I'm not being extreme. It's, it is the way it feels. And, and part of the reason why I think I feel better is that I've recognized that rather than trying to fight the panic attack, mm -hmm. the anxiety, I just allow it because it is a natural part of, of my everyday existence is that if I'm meant to have an anxiety attack, if, I, if, if, if it's meant to happen, then it will. And weirdly, there's something about willing it to come on. It's like, okay, listen, if you're going to happen, just happen. And it's so weird because now when I say that, and it's isn't it bizarre because I feel like I am talking to a monster. When I tell the monster, like, okay, listen, you want to do this? You want to come in my face and you want to destroy my day? Go right ahead. And it's weird because once you give it permission, it's like it doesn't oh, want it anymore. Wow. It's so bizarre. Facing up to it. Yeah, and it's that has helped me. You know, before I used to live in fear of, oh my goodness, I can't possibly speak publicly or go to town today or go out today because what if I have a panic attack? What if it happens? And it's so bizarre because in that moment when you say, you know what, actually, so what if I have a panic attack in public? So what if I fall apart a little bit in front of people? So what? Mm. Taking that control back has stopped it happening. And it's about control. And I think, you know, the more I kind of tell my monster, go on, do your best, it hides. And, and, and I think... That has really helped me in controlling it, um, but also accepting the fact that this is kind of how I feel, because as an overthinker, the only way I think is overthinking. I don't know how to think any other way. In being an overthinker, I'm an oversharer and I, you know, overlove and I overgive. And, and I've kind of come to accept that that's just who I am. And, and, and it, that makes having anxiety a lot easier. My goodness, I think that's going to help so many people. Let's go on to another area of your life. You had an arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. And am I right in saying that you only met your husband twice before getting married? You relocated to Leeds, away from your family and everything that was familiar to you. Um, you were only 20 at the time. And I know that very happily, you're actually madly in love with your husband and you have three gorgeous children. But at the time... Everything must have felt so different and unknown. Yeah. What was the experience like? Do you know what it is? I'm quite impulsive. I'm quite impulsive and I'm kind of all or nothing. I don't do things in halves. It's like, 
I really like that thing. I'm just going to, you know, like I'm quite impulsive. My marriage was very much like that. It was just kind of, I wasn't able to go to university. So I'd got into university and my parents were like, absolutely no way you're going to university. And so I had to then kind of backtrack and, and replan my life. I'd done really well at school. I was quite, I was very academic, really well in school, really well at college. The plan was always to go to university. When my parents said, no, you're not going to university. Um, I said, right, okay, well, what's the plan then? So I got three jobs. I worked really hard. And then the next step was, okay, well, just like I remember my dad saying, you're nearly 20, you're getting old, you need to get married. Oh, gosh. So I was like, okay, yeah, fine, um, whatever. And then so I was like, okay, so we had this kind of semi-arranged marriage where we, um, I'd m- spoken to my husband but never met him. And we met him the first day was when he, we kind of got engaged, was the first day that we'd actually ever met each other. And we'd spoken at length over six months, but we'd never actually physically been in a room together. It was amazing because like he had a beautiful face and a gorgeous ass. So that was great. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. And I mean, when you're 20, what are you looking for apart from a gorgeous ass and a beautiful face, right? Yeah. That's it. Tick. Tick, tick. Great. Let's walk down the aisle now. Tick, tick. And I was like, yeah, well, isn't that what all 20 year olds are looking for? And so it worked for me. I asked all the necessary questions, like you had a good job and like 10 year forecast, blah, blah, blah. And we we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because my dad just said, no, like he, he, he kind of, he was like, oh, you know, he's really good looking, you know. And I said, yeah. And my dad's like, yeah, but what if he doesn't stay with you? And I was like, why wouldn't he stay with me? Because there was this kind of notion that because I was like, because I had dropped brown skin and, and it, you know, that's something, there's a lot of colorism within our community. So my dad was like, right. yeah, but he's like, this is like a whole, this could be a whole other podcast, can I just say? And we could talk about this at length. And so we got married and the first day we got I met him. I saw him for about six minutes and we got engaged. And the day we got married, I think I sat with him for all of about five minutes alone for the first time. And then he was gone. We were shipped off to Bangladesh and we had this big wedding with like 3000 people at our wedding. We didn't know anyone apart from our own family. And that was it. And then and then we got married and I moved to Leeds. And like I said, I don't do things by halves. I kind of go all in. And I didn't know him that well. Moved to Leeds. And yeah, it was all a little bit as somebody who suffers with, suffers with anxiety, I really didn't help myself. <laughs> I was going to say, you yeah. know, maybe it's like the unknown was not good for you mm. and you jumped fully into this. But thank goodness you did because a marriage made in heaven. Absolutely. He learned that you loved to bake. And I love this. He, le- he loved, he, he learned that you loved to bake and you learned that he loved to eat cake. I mean, that's just like... You know, that's like a greetings card, yeah. isn't it? You know, you could have a best-selling Valentine's. I'm always thinking product yeah, because yeah, I'm yeah. not on the high street. But, you know, you could definitely have a whole a whole range there because he, he recognised that you were unfulfilled and actually said to you, I feel as though your wings have been clipped and I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah. And how wonderful because your husband then encouraged you to enter the Great British Bake Off. Your diamond was there just beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. We always talk at Holly & Co about a diamond inside of ourselves and how we maybe spend a life trying to find it and people can shine it and you can work on it. Um, And that set you off on a new path. And I couldn't believe that, you know, not only was first time on TV, but it was first time in a taxi, first time in a train alone, first time without your husband and children. You know, you must have been super nervous. Were you battling anxiety? Because someone who doesn't suffer from anxiety, 
even the thought of what you went through sends shivers down my spine. Yeah, I mean, let's. Do, I wish we could bring the woman that I accidentally sprayed an entire bottle of sparkling water all over into her handbag. <laughs> so nervous. I accidentally bought sparkling water, as you do, right? You know, when you go in, you're like, why have I just yeah. done that? Like, yeah. I, I just, yeah, I just to, want flat water. I just want get, flat and water. You, and you hear that noise, and you're oh, like, oh, I'm like, oh, the label. What have I done? Gotta read the label. But then obviously, I was frantically running for this train, shook this bottle furiously opened it next to this woman and she looked at me and she just she looked at me and she just said you idiot and I was like that's really mean because I'm crying and having a panic attack and I did like I did spray the entire bottle of water in her face and into her handbag so I was like I was giving her I was offering tissue while crying and having a panic attack and she wasn't having any of it so like I said I don't do anything by halves I'd suddenly gone and my husband decided that he was like, no, I think you should do Bake Off. And, and I kind of, I remember saying to him when I got into the final 12, I said, you're going to have to ring them and tell them I died. And he said, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> and he said, you ring them and tell them you died. And I said, well, I can't do that, can I? I can't come back from the dead. And he, <laughs> he's like, well, then that's your problem, isn't it? So he was like adamant. He was like, nope, you're going to do this. You're going to do this because you've got to do something where it's just you. I didn't understand it at the time. It felt like torture. I was like, why is he doing this? Like, why do I have to do this? Mm. But equally, I was really excited. And what I learned, it's about what I learned about myself through getting married to a man I hardly knew, moving 160 miles away from everything that was familiar, doing a TV show whilst in the midst of the worst kind of my worst mental state. I realised that I can swim. Mm. My whole life, I convinced myself that if I stepped into the water, I would drown. I found out that I can swim. I can tread water. I can swim. I can fast. I can swim slow. I can paddle. I can dip my toe. I can do all of those things. And that's what I learned about myself was that actually I'm not going to drown. For me, it was about being on the other side of fear. For me, I had to do those things. I had to be pushed in order, I had to, he had to push me and I had to push myself in order to realise that the water isn't that scary. Um, and so it was something that I have to constantly remind myself in those moments where I fear doing something that scares me witless. I realise, I tell myself, remember you swam. Do you remember you dipped mm. your toe? Do you remember you treaded water? You have to remind yourself of that. And so for me, it was reminding myself, I have to remind myself every single day that you jumped and you didn't drown. And that's really important. Just, just, <clears throat> just going to compose myself. Oh, I'm sorry. What a lovely thing to think. I'm wondering if anyone listening might take those words and, and think about what we all say to ourselves on the inside and actually what's true and, and normally what we think is opposite to what's true. And I just love this thought of knowing that you could swim. Were you nervous being a Muslim woman in a headscarf, thinking about people looking at you, thinking, can you bake? I mean, at the best of times, we're all screaming at the TV, aren't we? Yeah. Whether it's Dragon's Den, yeah. Bake Off, you yeah, know, yeah. all sitting on our sofas, not able to bake, not able to build a business, but somehow we can all be very, very vocal on the sofa. Yeah, yeah. Was that something that concerned you? Um, you know, I've spent my whole life walking into a room and being completely different. You know, I've spent my entire life, whether that's job interviews, 
you know, high schools, jobs, university, you name it. I was used to being the only person like me in a room. For me, that was unfamiliar. You know, that kind of scary feeling of being the only person like me wasn't a feeling that I hadn't felt before. So, you know what, it wasn't alien to me. It was kind of normal to walk into a room and be the only Muslim woman, to be the only brown person in a room. So it wasn't unfamiliar. But really, it was the moment when our names were announced they there was a daily mail article with everybody's kind of faces like our mugshots and then our like what we did and mine said housewife which was absolutely correct and i, I that's that's what i was i was a housewife there were loads of comments then i was reading all these comments about well she's the only one on benefits and she's you know she's a scrounger and i don't have to justify that to anyone like but i felt like i had to and i was like well i've never been on benefits and bloody blah and i was kind of justifying myself and then having to justify the fact that my husband had a good job and what is going on why am i justifying myself and as the weeks went on we had politicians making comments that well she may as well make a chocolate mosque or uh, now they're taking over our British baking shows. These were actual real life people saying these things. And it was hard to ignore. It was really difficult Mm. to say that it didn't affect me. I would be lying to say it didn't grind me down. It was one of the hardest things having to build myself back up every time I read something like that. I just can't even, I mean, how absolutely disgusting and pathetic. And it's just, it's, you know, that experience, I mean, I remember, I mean, it was just phenomenal. And um, I rewatched your speech Mm. when you won the bloody show, right? (laughs) So (laughs) they can say what they like, but you won. And I watched on YouTube recently. And funny enough, you had me in tears all over again because you said... I'm never going to put boundaries on myself ever again. I'm never going to say I can't do it. I'm never going to say maybe. I'm never going to say I don't think I can. I can and I will. Now, I've heard you say before that you used to tell yourself to listen to your own voice. Is this where the speech came from? Because I remember how emotional you were at that time. And of course, because for everyone that didn't realise what you've been going through, mm-hmm. from the anxiety to the trolls, yeah. to be there winning <laughs> was a good moment, a good moment. Yeah. But it must have been uh, just so full of mixed feelings for you. Yeah, lots of people kind of say to me when, when they hear that, they say, did you have that prepared? Did you know you were going to win? Firstly... No, I am not Beyonce. I did not have a speech prepared. No. And two, I absolutely know. You know, I did not know I was going to win. No way. I mean, even when I won, I handed the trophy back to Paul and I said, are you sure you haven't made a mistake? Do you want to do that again? Now that I've worked in telly, I know that they are never going to do that again. They're like, they've done it. We're wrapped. Go take a trophy and run. We don't have the budget or the time to be doing that again. So I know that wasn't going to happen. I know now, six years later. But um, I remember giving it back to Paul and saying, and he's looking at me and he said, why are you being so silly? Like, you've won this Mm. um, fair and square. And, you know, even after winning, I remember people saying, well, you won because you're Asian. You won because you're brown. You won because you're a minority. And you know what? Six years later, I can proudly say I won because I was good. Yes. It's taken me a long time to get there because so often I tell myself, oh, you're so lucky to have this career. And I am to an extent. 
but I'm also really good at what I do. And as women, mm-hmm. as a member of the, you know, of the BAME community, especially as women, yeah. we're so good at kind of diverting what we're good at and saying, no, no, no. And, 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 and not, you know, even when like somebody says, where did you get that from? That looks really nice. And we have to give them the price and the sale. You know, I spent, you know, like I got this from the sale rack. You know, we have, to, why do we do that? Don't why don't we just say thank you? I just was talking to my co-founder yesterday and I said, you look, that's a lovely dress. Yeah, got it on eBay. Yeah, why? Okay. Didn't ask where you got it. Just saying you, you look pretty you gorgeous. Look gorgeous. What is that? We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to our resident business coach, Kate, about how we can overcome the feeling of fear rather than allowing it to stop us from reaching our potential. The good news about fear is that it's so unpleasant (laughs) that we're usually quite motivated to do something about it. Where we sometimes make the mistake or stay stuck is that we think we need to kind of fight it somehow, you know, fight the fear. But what tends to happen then is it grows. You know, it gets bigger and it takes over our lives a little bit more. What we're really looking to do is to change our relationship to it Mm -hmm. and to use our fear. Because actually the first thing to do is to actually recognize that fear can work to our advantage. You know, life works for us, not against us. So the reframe of fear into information, data, guidance, like have fear become our ally almost to reach our potential. Because without that, you know, we can stay stuck. We don't realize our potential. And actually, ironically, that can be the thing we're fearful of in the first place. For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram. You can also visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub, a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community, sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Is there an element of, you just said, yeah, there's luck. There's the universe, there's all these things going on, but I'm also really good at what I do. Yeah. Is that okay that we say that? And why do we why do we feel so uncomfortable? And why do we, if we're even honest, mm. even women to women, you know, we need to do a better job maybe of encouraging yeah. that yes. conversation. Yes. Because I still I don't think it's just a man and woman thing. No. I think it's just a general thing that's going on, whatever sex you are, that we you know, take a little deep breath when someone says that. Yeah, it's like we have to really think. And why can't we just say, if somebody says, do you know what, you look really nice in that dress. Why don't we just say, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, mm-hmm. uh, or just say, you know what, I, I I like it. I think it looks good on me. Why can't we say that? Mm. And and we've kind of conditioned ourselves to believe that we're not good enough. And I can only speak 
as a woman, you know, and I can only speak as a woman for myself, you know, we're always beating ourselves up. We're always saying that we could have done better. But what if you just did the best you could do? Yeah, I, mean, I certainly as a parent, I'm constantly beating myself up saying, oh, I could have done better. I could have done this. I could have done that. Well, actually, what if you just did the best job you physically could, you possibly could. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just did the best job. We are not good at congratulating ourselves. No. We're not good at patting ourselves on the back and saying, you know what, you did good. And that's something that I've had to learn over the six years because the environment I work in, whether it's publication, whether it's, whether it's media, whether it's, you know, books, you name it, all of that. It's very, especially in food, it's very much middle-aged Caucasian man territory. Mm -hmm. And here I am, yes. Muslim, five foot one, brown woman who, who turns up. And I'm not saying I want your space. I just want my own. Yeah. Like, I don't want to take your job. I just want to do my job. This is not a competition. I can do my job and you can do yours and we can work side by side. And there's enough space for all of us. Is there, though? Is there, though? My question is, if there's enough space for all of us, why am I the only one there? Yeah. Because somewhere along the line somebody decided there was no space for people like me. Mm -hmm. And that's why doing this job is far more than just writing recipes oh, and doing television. For me, it's about saying, actually, even though you think that I don't deserve this space, even though you think this space was not for me, because I can tell you firsthand that there was no space for me. I can tell you firsthand the pushbacks that I got as a Muslim woman trying to carve a career into this industry. I know the pushbacks I've had from publishers, from television. I know that myself firsthand, that there is no space for me. I've had to work really hard to create that space for myself. And it's important for me to be really honest about that. Yeah. I do feel the weight of it sometimes because ultimately as a mother, my job was only ever to be a role model to my children, my nephews and nieces and the people closest to me. And obviously that's now much bigger. That's much, the scale is huge now. And, and I'm really honest about the fact that I'm human and I make mistakes just like everybody else. If I pretended that I was this perfect version of myself, that would be completely unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a perfect version of myself. And, and, and I don't, I don't strive for perfection. I, I say that I'm human and I make mistakes and that's okay. But, you, you, you know, the weight is heavy sometimes. But, you know, if you'd asked me six years ago, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the, the uh, representation and what that means. I would have said, no, let's talk about cake. Let's talk about cooking. That's what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the truth is that's something that is always going to follow me around. There's nothing that I can do about the fact that I do represent a mm. minority that don't work in publishing or television and that are not seen. Because the, one of the questions I had to ask myself growing up was, if I don't see myself, do I even exist? And I never saw myself. I never saw myself in books. I never saw myself in television. I never saw myself in magazines. So I didn't exist. Mm. Everybody else existed. White people existed. I didn't exist. Mm. Black people didn't exist. To me, it was a white world. And I had to find a way of fitting into it. And that meant compromising me. And I refused to do that anymore. I refused to compromise me to fit into the world that was created for somebody else. Instead, I am not compromising me anymore. And I'm saying I am wholeheartedly who I am. And I'm creating space for us because we all deserve a space. And, you know, working mostly for me in the food industry, where it is very much um, male dominated, there was no space for me. There wasn't. And that was really obvious. And that was really kind of, that was 
from the get-go really obvious to me. And, and you know, a lot of times it ended in tears and it, it was a really, I had to ask myself, why are you doing this to yourself? It was yeah, really, stop. stop, because yeah. this is going to kill you. Like this, it was, it was destroying me. Do you think that the, um, because I know that you got a lot of trolling during that period of time mm-hmm. and potentially still do, what do you do? Do you do the same to the trolls as you do to your monster? Well, kill them with kindness. Yes, because that's what it's, you know, my kids are on social media now. I don't want them to ever look at it and say, you know what, mum's a different person when she's not. Like when they see me cook, they see the same person they see at home. When they see me on television, they're like, that's just her. That's her cackling. That's her cackle. That's her laugh. That's how she speaks. That's me. So I'm no different. So when it comes to social media, I'm really aware that my children are affected by the things I say and do. Um, in the public eye. So I don't want them to have a look back and say, mom, that's not who you are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't give them breathing space. Sometimes I hear these negative comments and I say to myself, actually, I, I don't have time for this. And sometimes I do answer because I feel like they need to know that, you know, I'm not voiceless. I'm not voiceless and I'm not a punching bag. And you can't just, you can't just throw punches because you need to throw punches because you have something wrong with you or you have issues. I am not a punching bag. So um, I will give as good as I get but it's always with kindness because I'm not that person and I'm not I'm not willing to stoop to their level and like I said you know in an ideal world they'd love for me to just kind of like hide away and just never come back again but that's not it's just not going to happen it's just not going to happen tell me would you ever consider entering the world of politics because <laughs> you seem to have done more for british muslim women and multicultural relationships than any politicians done. Would I ever consider it? You know, I get asked this question quite a lot, which I find really surprising. I find it really surprising because I get asked quite often, would you enter the world of politics? I just think I'm, am I just too nice for politics? I just think I might be too nice for politics. I might be too honest for politics, Mm -hmm. perhaps. You might want to get shit done. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You know, If I became a politician, I might actually get stuff done. And I think that would not work for the world of politics because they like to do nothing. They like to do nothing. So, no, I I can't see myself in politics, but I can see myself making a change. I can see myself moving mountains and I can see myself changing things. And I can see myself being a voice for people, for the voiceless. I I see all of that. And and I realise now that um, there's more than just me. You have to remember that I'm not the only one in that water. We are each other's life rafts. We are holding on. And that is, we have to remember that you're not alone. And that was one of the biggest things for me, being open about my mental health and my struggles and and being honest about the things that I've experienced in my life. Remember, a lot of suffering with those things is is connected to shame and isolation and and there is no shame and you're not alone and I think that's something that people have to remember so anyone who's listening who feels like who feels shame or feels isolated remember you're not alone and you shouldn't feel shame because I'm in that water with you you know we are each other's life rafts you're inspiring not only us women me today best tonic ever (laughs) but you're inspiring other young girls to question their place in society that they will be able to maybe dream bigger than previous generations might have ever thought possible what would you say to those girls in terms of you know they're going to have a you know you've had a very different life to your parents right your kids are going to have a different life but moving forward your young niece you know yeah what would you say well 
I kind of look back at my parents and as an as a te- angsty teenager, I kind of look back and thought to myself, what are you doing with yourselves? Like I used to constantly say, like, let's do this. I had big ideas. And they were like, no, no, no. And what I'd, what I'd realized actually about my parents as, as immigrants, they were simply surviving. Mm-hmm. There was no element of thriving, bigger, yeah. better. No. So for me, that's something that I always tell my children and I tell my nephews and my nieces, they survived for us so we could thrive. So I always tell my children and I tell my nephews and nieces, don't just survive, thrive. And and that is really, that's kind of one of the things that we always talk about because, you know, they survived. They, and it was, it was just about survival for them. It's about paying the bills, getting us fed, getting us to school, getting stuff done. And they made those sacrifices so we could thrive today. We have to pay it back in order to pay it forward. And I tell my kids all the time, like, we are paying it forward to you, but we have to remember the reason why you are where you are is because of where they were. And so you have to remember in order to know where you are, in order to know who you are today, you have to know where you came from. Mm. And that is really important. And, And so I'm constantly teaching my children about the sacrifices that my granddad made, the sacrifices that my parents made in order for us to be where we are today. And yes, with that came fear and retribution and and it was a struggle and you know I think about my granddad being beaten up by skinheads and being left for dead on several occasions he didn't do that so we could just survive Mm -hmm. he came back and he did that so we could thrive and we could take up the space and say we're here because my granddad was to me the ultimate person who said do you know what I am here, you see me, so I exist. And for us, we have to live that. We have to live that. Mm. He made himself seen so we could exist. And Absolutely. That's, that is ultimately our goal is to be seen and to exist. And talking about thriving, you're an incredible woman. You've got a beautiful family. You won the Bake Off, which is, you know, another institution, an amazing English treasure. Uh, you've written best-selling books. You bake the Queen's 90th birthday cake. Yeah. Any dreams that you haven't fulfilled yet? My goodness, you know, I still haven't climbed a mountain, which I said I was going to do, which I'd like to do, which I plan every year and I never do. But you know what? (sighs) Apart from, like, I'm three years away from 40 and I would like to buy a Vespa and get my bike licence. That's it. Like, for me, (laughs) I want a sage-coloured Vespa. That's what I've decided. And my husband's like, wow, that's midlife crisis. I said, I don't care. Call it what you want. I want a Vespa and I want my bike license. That's what I want to do. And I want to deliver cake. Like I want to deliver cake to unsuspecting people in my Vespa. And that's what I want to do. But, you know, ultimately the big, the dream. I'll tell you a story. Abdal and I were at this event and it was like an awards event and Mary Berry flagged him down and she said, oh, and 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 what I love about her is she always remembers him. She always remembers Abdel. Like she remembers me, but how does she know his face? Like how does she remember his face? It's the face and bottom, isn't it? Yes, it is. She she spotted spotted the bottom, that's what it was. And so she flagged him down and and they spoke for ages. They were having a good old natter. And she said, you know, I don't have all this social media stuff, you know, and I don't, I don't, do all of that. But I do follow Nadia and I do make sure she's okay. And I hope that she does this for as long as I've done it. And for me, if that's not a blessing, I don't know what is. The truth is, I want to be doing this for as long 
as Mary has done it. And I want to do it for as long as possible, not just because I absolutely love my job, but also because it is about creating that space and saying, come on, let's do this. It's a revolution. Let's create that space for each other because I'm not the kind of person who wants to kind of tread on people on my way up. Mm. I want to hold your hand and take you with me. And that's what's really important. And I've met so many wonderful people in my last six or seven years. And it's about saying, come on, let's do this together. Let's thrive and let's hold each other's hands and let's climb together. It's not about climbing the mountain on my own because it's lonely at the top. You know, we want to go up there and celebrate together and that's really important. Do what you're doing yeah, on your sage, Vesper. Delivering cake. I love that. Here, you be my first, Holly. I'll deliver some cake to you Please on my Vesper. stop okay? it. Don't let's say do things it. like do that. It. Don't say things like that. Also, my husband's just, um, he might have had a midlife crisis, but that's okay because he's 60. And um, he um, just went to go and get his bike licence one year waiting list. Just wanted to let you know that no. because of the pandemic, it's a year's waiting list. So you might need to just pre-plan, okay. put it in now. Thank you, Holly. Yeah, thank just, you. Just wanted to give you that little tip. I'll just buy the Vespa first. Yeah, just do that anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, just have it in the living just room. Polish it just polish it for three years. Just polish it for three years. The kids will be like, you're going to be naughty? Polish my Vespa. Um, tell me, as someone I adore, door headscarves. I couldn't not ask you about your 150, am I right in saying this, headscarves? Yeah, something like that, yeah. You buy them everywhere? Yeah, I you just love kind them. of love them. You're like a magpie? Yeah. And your husband, has he said it denotes what mood you're in? If I'm like in all black, it's probably really a busy day. And today it's kind of an all black situation because yes. I've like got yeah. lots to do. But sometimes when I'm feeling yeah. right, I feel a bit fruity. I'm like, oh, let's go for a pink. And I love the colour block. And yeah, and I just love bright pops of colour just because I just think it just lifts the mood it yes. just makes it I have the luxury of wearing lots of different coloured scarves on my head because it's like and it feels to me like it's like changing your hair colour every single day and I get to do yes. that like that's kind of cool I don't have to have this that is so cool yeah I don't have to have the same hair colour every day I just kind of change it up so yeah I love a, a, a big bright bold colour so yeah and lots of prints I love prints I definitely could talk to you all day and you've just, you know, as you say, you know, you've had me in tears God knows how many times so far, um, but it's just been a real honour and you truly are pretty remarkable. I come towards the end of my podcast where I ask about those listening are either they have dreams, they might build their dreams, they might be running their dreams, um, they might have been doing it for a long time. And we know that when we're building our own destiny, it's not easy. And so I liken it to a roller coaster. And I'd like to ask you today, on your roller coaster, what would you say has been one of your biggest lows? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't know. I think for me, one of the hardest things, and I say the biggest low as if it's just one moment, but actually there was many dips and, and troughs and highs and lows. And for me, it's that constant need to justify. And I find that, re I, I, I find it hard to even talk about, but constantly having to justify being British. And it's mm -hmm. like, because outwardly somebody might look at me and say, like, I get asked the question, where are you from? I'm like, from Luton. Mm. Just like Stacey Dooley. Like, mm -hmm. I am from Luton. <laughs> and that constant need to justify myself. And I've spent, and you know what it is, I've spent my whole life justifying my existence. And just to exist and for it to cause such uproar, just to simply exist is really, is a really tough pill to swallow. Especially when you suffer with mental health issues and you've got anxiety, it, it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. But that for me is my, has always been the thing that really can 
bring me right down is that actually constantly justifying my existence. And like, I don't even answer that question anymore because it's, I am who I am and I'm unashamedly who I am. And it's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. Yeah. And you've got energy to place in many, many incredible places. Oh, you know, yeah. And so, yeah. and then conversely, then what would you say in your in your roller coaster cart full of unbelievable cake? It probably would have even been made out of cake, knowing you. Yeah. What would you say has been your greatest high? Do you know what? Of all the things that I've ever done, the biggest thing I'd ever done at the very beginning of this journey was doing Bake Off. I'm not even going to say that winning Bake Off was the high for me. It's the quiet bits that nobody saw. It was the quiet triumphs of being able to get in a taxi, be able to leave my children behind for the first time, to get on a train. Those quiet, like hidden triumphs can be the biggest things in your life. And they can mm. be the thing that set you on that roller coaster ready and as we're talking about roller coasters one thing I always say to myself is if you are going to sit on a roller coaster sit at the front that's where you've got the best view <laughs> oh, I don't <laughs> want to even ask you to read your letter to your younger self because I'm already tearing up already god I'm so sorry beautiful sit at the front sit at the if front if you're gonna do it sit at the front I am not the kind of girl that sits at the back it's like no no I know I no. can imagine I can imagine what headscarf what color you'd wear fly as well. <laughs> I'm gonna hand over to you now to read your letter to your younger self it's it's a moment that's incredible privilege for me and I know that everybody listening can't wait so thank you Nadia again for sharing a little bit of your soul with us today thank you weirdly like I'd written I thought about this and then I was because I write a lot of stuff I just happened to have this already written so this was obviously meant for you Holly okay so letter to my younger self dear me dear younger you I want to ask you do you know who you are do you know who you might become? A question I know you cannot answer because you cannot look beyond. Beyond words, glances, side eyes and sniggers. Beyond your button nose, beyond your brown skin, beyond your coarse hair, beyond your rolls. Blinded to see what is there at the centre in your heart because every single time you are reminded of who you are not. Do you know who you are? You know who you are. I am the button nose my mother gave me. I am the brown skin my granddad worked hard for. I am my veiled head. My roles made room for my babies. Who knows what I might become? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's just, when I hear you say those words, you just so know who you are now. Yeah. And that's, putting the trolls and the monster and people aside because there is something that's drawing you higher and higher and higher. And, you know, I think everyone knows that. That's why everyone really, really loves you. You are a national treasure, whether your brother wants to accept it or not. Yeah. And you've achieved more in these six years than many people do in a lifetime. Yeah. And I think that that's because you've been blessed with that because you're a you're one of those good humans. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Um, this was really, really special. Thank you so much. 
Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.